Hey Kansas City, welcome to episode 46 of the Made in KC podcast. Today is the 56th day since Kansas City, Missouri's stay-at-home order was announced. I'm Tyler Enders. I'm Keith Bradley. And I'm Thomas McIntyre. Today, we'll catch you up on our latest thoughts regarding unemployment, future waves of coronavirus in the U.S., and getting outside. Well, guys, nice to be sitting here with you. Yeah, this is strange. We are all in the same room right now. Potentially going to be very awkward. We're used to staring at our screens and looking around and not at each other's faces. So this is is a new feel. And hitting that that mute button throughout the podcast. Yeah, there's no mute button now. Tyler's converted our conference room into a uh, a studio, which means we have a bunch of blankets and towels hanging <laughs> from the ceiling and some candles burning. So yeah, it's a weird vibe, but I think it won't have any negative effect on the content. So you guys are in good shape for listening. <laughs> yeah, the, the candles have a rationale, but we, we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah, after doing what, 45 of these? Yeah, it is a little different doing it in person. So hopefully uh, all goes well. I, re- I record all, all 45 of mine were in the exact same spot. Now, you guys moved around your house quite a bit. You were most in the same spot, Tyler, but mine was up in my boys' closet for each one of those 45 episodes. Yeah, I bounced around, and I just yesterday, or whatever day, I texted you guys. I disconnected my podcasting mic hmm. to get it out of the way. It was kind of sad. It was a bit of an end of an era. It's a good end of an era, uh, <laughs> recording a podcast at a stay-at-home order for 60 days or whatever. See, I kept my microphone because I'm in this mindset that we're going to have to keep on doing Zoom calls and conference calls. And so therefore, I was thinking about how a lot of people probably need to be like trained up on here, the really cheap mics that you could get oh, and nice. ways that you could make your at-home video conferencing of a higher level. <laughs> I do. I felt more uh, legitimate with that cool mic we had at home that I like would pull down in front of me to talk yeah. with the screen in front of it. Oh, yeah. We're sitting and, in this room of hanging laundry right now. <laughs> and, and for everyone at home, our, our mics were $50 yeah. each. So <laughs> they looked cool, though. They did look really, really legit. I had a fairly kind of negative thought when you sent that text, Thomas, that you disbanded your stuff. I kind of imagine you throwing away in the trash and not wanting to use it again. I was like, I definitely should save mine because what if one of us gets sick and we have to quarantine for two weeks? I don't want to miss out on recording episodes even if we're not physically together. I definitely didn't throw it out, but having a toddler that was very fond of playing with it, I (laughs) took out the temptation and removed it. Uh, So what's different about our format now is obviously not doing it more regularly, but when you skip a couple days, a lot happens in Kansas City. Yeah. uh, Over the weekend, the restaurants were allowed to reopen. Did not rain like they thought it was. The weather was nice, and uh, the city has a little bit of a different vibe for it. We reopened our shops, which we want to talk to you guys about, and get you caught up on all things Kansas City and coronavirus. Yeah, let's start with um, our own shops. So we opened six shops, and this is more Keith's realm than Thomas's or mine, but as far as I understand it, everything went pretty much without a hitch. Yeah, we did. We did lose power in one of our stores on the first day we opened. We were over for like two hours. <laughs> we got a text. Power just went out. Uh, no, no fault of our own, and it got back on very quickly. But uh, overall, employees were excited to be back in the stores. Uh, customers were excited to see us, and uh, things went uh, very smoothly for not having operated in that realm for you know sixty days essentially. Traffic was about what we expected, which is was significantly slower than what we normally expect on a weekend like this, particularly taking into the weather and other events that would have normally been happening around Kansas City. 
pre-pandemic, but overall, uh, I think it was a very good weekend for us, especially with some of the new practice and procedures we put in place, allowing our employees to step back in a, in a real comfortable way during this time has been been really good. For those who that had asked me, I've been saying that I think we did about 30% of what we would normally want to do. And based upon so many businesses not being open this past weekend, I feel as though we'll see probably a 50% increase in traffic next weekend, which I think is on a comfortable track for us. And it does, in hindsight, make the reopen a little bit easier. So as employees are trying to balance all these new things, it's easier for them to do it with 30% of the traffic. Yeah, I think so too. I naively, many months ago, had this thought that once this was over, there would be one kind of like celebratory, like grand reopening for all things Kansas City. And that's clearly not going to be the case. And it clearly would not be not be a good thing for, for any of us. And so I think we'll see these continued staggered reopenings where although a lot of restaurants were allowed to reopen this weekend, my experience was that, you know, most decided not to and they're going to keep keep doing takeout and carry out until they or their customers felt more comfortable coming back inside, which I think is a, a smart thing to do. Um, but I do think traffic will only go up here for us and other other retailers and restaurants throughout the city. Nope. Yeah, it'll be it's so of it so much of it's gonna be people's personal comfort level. Like I've been talking about, I mean the the rules and regulations will will do a certain amount, but it's just gonna come down to how people wanna act on an individual basis, feeling safe and how they how they go about their days. And so I think it's just gonna be a matter of more and more potential good news coming out. Is this gonna reinforce people feeling safe and getting back to normal? Related to that, since we have been off for a little bit and some people are probably growing tired of staying up to date with news and numbers related to coronavirus, uh, I want to go over a few bullet points. Currently, there have been 1.5 million people in the U.S. that have been infected by COVID-19 and 91,000 have died. We're hoping everyone pays attention to how these statistics roll out. So over the course of the next couple of weeks, we will likely continue to see improving numbers with decreasing cases and deaths, even as we open up and get out and about. But the delay of testing means that those numbers are really not directly related to what's happening now, more what's been happening before now. And as a few weeks pass, we'll start to see those numbers start to creep back up. What I'm concerned about there, guys, is that there's going to be an overreaction. So we're going to see these numbers come back up and people are going to say, this is the resurgence that everyone's been talking about and we need to shut down hard again. Um, I think there's going to be some truth to that. I think it's going to be some reality check of the things that we're doing that we need to tighten up a little bit because I do see see us getting looser and looser as we open up and numbers are positive. So I just hope that people pay attention to what those numbers are actually reflecting from a timing standpoint. So I'm actually pretty, I'm actually more optimistic there in that I think there are a number of different reasons that as we're out and about now and in the coming weeks, Um, We will see this lagging two-week, three-week effect where cases come back up, and then a couple weeks after that, deaths will come back up. So if someone gets exposed today, they could incubate for up to two weeks, and then once they get sick, they could be sick and in the hospital or on a ventilator for another two weeks. And so we have these two lagging indicators, and my hope is that while people are out and about now, the reason we won't have a spike but more of just a bump would be my hope is that there's a handful of people who will still stay inside. And then also the way in which people get out and about, I'm hoping is going to be smart. And so it'll be at stores like ours where there are very few people in there at a time. And so I'm hoping that um, while I agree with you, we'll see some sort of increase. 
My hope is that it's small enough that it doesn't uh, alarm anyone and jar them into making some sort of you know, knee-jerk reaction where all of a sudden we impose greater restrictions than are commensurate to the problem. Yeah, so related to that, all this is based on our ability to test uh, and to revisit that. The U.S. testing capacity is still really pretty pathetic at this point in time in terms of number of te- uh, tests per capita that are A, available, and B, happening. And so I think we'd all agree we haven't seen the progress there that we thought we would over the past 60 yeah. days in terms of, of options and, and frequency. Uh, but there is a new-at-home nasal testing kit that has been approved by the FDA that I know very little about potentially could vastly increase the amount of tests we see if it's an at-home kit. Yeah, I've been extremely frustrated by the increase in testing because it's something that's talked about as the number one most important thing, and it keeps on coming up in the news, but I think it's just something that's hard to hold people accountable, and no one really knows who exactly should be responsible for this besides the federal government using their executive power to go ahead and say everyone needs to do this. But it's kind of pathetic when you look at our tests per capita relative to countries around the world. And even then, the antibody tests that we're seeing that are supposed to let people know if they have been infected or not infected, there's all these asterisks around those that say, well, there's a lot of false negatives happening. I believe it's what it is, false negatives happening. And so it's it's to be taken with a grain of salt, uh, which is fairly worthless in terms of us being able to make decisions and, and go about our lives based on the knowledge we've had that had or not. Uh, one more specific to Kansas City numbers that we've had a doubling rate for cases and deaths uh, at a two-month rate. This is a positive thing. That is a, a good number in comparison to other cities. Uh, that's a positive thing. We hope to see keep seeing that go in that direction, but potentially, as we were just talking about, as we get open, we might see a hopefully slow increase, um, not a spike going forward. Yeah, what's interesting to me about all those that tie in both the kind of testing issue and reopening is so far... My impression of our testing in America has been responsive and more defensive than offensive. So, for example, we get a case at a meatpacking plant. Now let's test everybody versus testing them before they're coming into work in that meatpacking plant, causing a big spike in cases. So I think that as we reopen, a lot of the uh, the onus and responsibility is going to be on businesses and to reopen safely because those are environments that can cause spread more quickly. So we see... Certain areas around Kansas City, offices not going to be fully open, very limited capacity. But then we have other places like uh, the Ford plant that's opening today up in Claycomo, going to be fully open, bring all their employees back. They've got to do everything right, you know, because they're more likely to have an outbreak than, say, customers going to the grocery store and getting their groceries. I think we've seen that spread hasn't been happening because of that, but more about these um, larger gatherings of people. And so... It's going to be really interesting over the next couple of weeks how businesses navigate that and how, unfortunately, on top of everything that businesses have to do in running their business, now they've got to probably be responsible for the testing and rolling out testing because there's not that public testing available that we need to stay on top of this. Yeah, we're just such big believers in the power of data, and it's frustrating that we don't have more. We were talking earlier today about how Kansas City landed on one of these risky cities to watch, and it was complete misinformation. It was based upon positivity rates at a facility that is close to Kansas City. And when we look at the Kansas City rates, what we just reported now is from the New York Times based upon Kansas City, Missouri, and it doesn't encompass the whole metro. And so what we keep on telling our employees is that we are constantly looking at the case rates and positivity rates across the metro because 
just because Missouri has one trend or Kansas has one trend doesn't mean we should have a store open in Prairie Village or close a store in Briarcliff. So the more information, the better. And we're, we're fighting that battle every day, but um, hopefully we'll get more tests. So there are a couple papers that came out. Mark Lipsitch was one of the co-authors for two of them. He's a infectious disease epidemiologist at Harvard. And these two papers talked about the different future scenarios for recurring spikes and surges of coronavirus. The main takeaway was that experts believe this is going to last longer than some people had hoped. And they're saying this is 18 to 24 months that this will last. The three different scenarios are as follows. First is that we will have a second larger wave that would happen in the fall or the winter, kind of like the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. This would be a very bad case scenario, and we certainly hope that doesn't happen. The second would be that we continue to have equal-sized peaks and valleys, and that we have these continuous waves. And so the wave that we're experiencing now is about the approximate size that we'll experience again in the fall or winter, and then again after that, and again after that, for a period of 18 to 24 months. And then the third is this slow burn model where you have the peak that we have now with a lot of smaller outbreaks continuing for 18 to 24 months. And it's still kind of up in the air. No one's really, that I'm aware of, put numbers or percentages behind which they think is the most likely. But for some of the reasons we mentioned earlier, we are hopeful that it'll be that third scenario where this was the biggest peak and we'll have a lot of smaller outbreaks. And I think that's because of our strict social distancing, warmer air, um, less super spreading opportunities as we don't have as many opportunities for people to share the same space, whether that's through church gatherings or concerts or large public events or also working in facilities where people are really close to each other. So hopefully all these things will combine to create a shorter, smaller tail with lots of little bumps as opposed to a larger bump. And a big part of that will be the way that the public chooses to act. And there are some other really, really exciting and encouraging studies that came out over the past week from all across the globe that are really encouraging people to now get outside, which is kind of the opposite of the stay home movement that we saw for the, most of the last two weeks. The stay at home movement. <laughs> stay at home movement. <laughs> yeah, it, really, it really does seem so, uh, so counterintuitive, right? Uh, the reason why obviously everyone was stay at home quarantine was so it wouldn't spread the virus. Um, and now, uh, it's not necessarily, uh, I don't think like new, new data that's coming out that being outside is, is safe, but it's uh, certainly being presented in a way that's very encouraging. Um, especially now as people are going back out and coming back home, the home becomes a, a place that the, the virus can spread very easily, uh, and contract. And so there's a lot of been a lot of encouraging studies about being outside is actually really safe. You still want to keep your distance from other people, but because of everything from humidity to sunlight to the wind, it reduces the risk of transmitting the virus. And if virus is transmitted, it is uh, a significant less dose to where it potentially will not affect anyone. So there was one interesting study that said um, of 1,200 coronavirus cases, only two came from outdoor transmission, which is just incredible when you think about it. And uh, a real, real incentive to... So rethink whether it is your home environment, your workplace, your your business, to how we can encourage more both airflow and getting outside and being active as a way to, to kind of cope and live in this uh, live in this new normal. And this also, I think, combines a lot of things we like to talk about 
um, individually on the podcast of reimagining what society could look like, what business could look like. We've talked a lot about road closures and reimagining everything from shopping centers to, to parks and uh, transportation. And it seems like that is a trend that is going in the right direction and will continue um, continue across our country. So Oakland has recently closed almost 10% of its roads. Cincinnati is closing more streets. Uh, we've talked previously about um, Seattle and, and other places across the country doing this. But it seems like if we can create more space for people to, to engage activity, that kind of solves a little bit of the health crisis to a certain extent and also can spur on the economy. And on the other hand, so we don't have to make this choice between being quarantined and getting back to work. There's a, there's a way to do both in, in many cases that involve some creativity um, and, and getting outside, which is really, really encouraging, I think. What do you guys think about this? Well, one of the good reminders as we were reading these articles was that while transmission is thought to be two to three people per sick person. So if I'm sick, that on average, I would get two to three people sick. The One of the authors reinforced that that is just the average and that most people actually only get zero to one people sick. And it's because of these super spreading situations where one person might go to you know, a business meeting or a dinner or a choir practice or interact with multiple people and get multiple people sick. And it was very encouraging to hear that we've reduced the opportunity for those super spreading events. So most people should now fall into that zero to one realm. And if each sick person is only getting zero to one people sick, then all of a sudden this thing diminishes again and again until it's disappeared. So that to me, again, is extremely encouraging. And hopefully we can kind of shift all that same concerted effort that we've had about social distancing to now social distancing in a healthier way that also includes being outside. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of data I was hoping for. So I think Tyler mentioned earlier that relatively speaking, the U.S. has been terrible at contact tracing, but other countries have done a decent job at it. And we've been able to look at that data and actually make some pretty decent assumptions about how it's a spreading over the past. I mean, it's still a short period of time we've been able to analyze what's happening here. I mean, we're talking about 60, 90 days and it's the kind of information and tips I was hoping for early on that we'd be able to know, yes, this is a problem, but here's how you can zoom in and see the problem. And being outside seems to be helpful. Uh, seems to be much less of a chance. Um, you know, it's not about touching the door handle that somebody else touched, but it's more about sharing the same space within six feet of somebody and talking to them and having a high exposure to their their breath and droplets of saliva or whatever. Like it is. being in this enclosed room. With like yeah, yeah, like the three, what three of us are doing right now. But yeah, I hope to keep seeing more of this and I feel good about it. I think it's going to be what allows us to have a better economy, better life, quality of life, and still let this thing dwindle down uh, to less of a problem as we wait for vaccine to come out. With, with the caveat that we are not virologists or even scientists, I think that a lot of the authors of these studies have a hard time asserting something beyond what the data can actually speak to. But most of the way that we consume this knowledge was through someone else writing about it. And so now as we dilute this one more time, I guess we can get more <laughs> liberal with it. But I was, uh, it was interesting to hear people say, you know, you shouldn't be that fearful of the elevator. The amount of time that you spend in the elevator probably isn't enough for you to get sick, even if someone next to you is sick, because it's just not enough. It's not going to add to your viral load enough. Right. But sitting in a restaurant with someone who's at the table behind you, that actually is enough the way that that spreads. And so I think that does, back to what Thomas was saying, give people the information they need 
to be smart about what activities they can engage in. I, speaking of the elevator, I had a really awkward. I was having, having to take a uh, drop a check off somewhere, and it was downtown, and their offices are like third or fourth floor. And I walk in, and there's a resident in that building who is waiting for the elevator as well. And uh, I didn't know. I was like, oh, if I'm going to get in with this guy or not. And so the door opened. He walks in. He's like, looks at me. I was like, hey, I'm going to ask, like, give the no nod. <laughs> we can't say a word. It's no like the door closes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I figure, like, worst case scenario, the guy feels weird that he got in the elevator with him in this situation versus me getting in the elevator and be like, what the hell, dude? I didn't yeah. want you in this elevator with me. Right. And I'm stuck <laughs> in the elevator with him for four floors. So, yeah, it was uh, – I, we didn't speak about it. I wasn't like, do you want me to get in this <laughs> elevator with you or not? But yeah, anyway, funny that you mentioned the elevator thing and I had no idea how to handle that situation. Uh, one of the kind of things that I thought was an encouraging sign that reopened this weekend, which I was honestly surprised about, but very encouraged to see was the Kansas City Zoo. So there's still obviously, even though we're in phase kind of one or 1.5 or entering phase two, having all look at Kansas City and like mass gatherings um, are uh, limited, which is important. Um, you would think a place like the zoo, which is a public place, would, would be closed. But I think they uh, reasonably assessed, hey, we're outside most of the time. The Kansas City is massive. If we limit people coming in, people can still have a really good, safe experience. You're mostly outside 90% of the time at the zoo. And it'd be just a really great thing for the public to do as they uh, kind of reemerge from, from quarantine. And I thought that just seemed really reasonable, even more so than, say, open the worlds of fun. We're going to hold on the handles, touch rides, you know, all that sort of stuff. The zoo just made a lot of sense to reopen it. So I think it's going to continue to take a lot of reasonable steps like that, small steps. We want to get us more comfortable being outside and coming out of our homes in a safe way, but also, too, to, to ride this, you know, ride this bicycle that we need to ride for until there's a vaccine. Yep. I think that this encouragement of spending time outside could make for a really nice summer. I've read multiple articles that were titled you know, the COVID summer, and most of them were pretty sad and depressing, but they were <laughs> written earlier on in this process. And at this point, I think that a COVID summer might be finding ways to entertain yourself that aren't at a movie theater, that aren't at an indoor concert, that aren't at indoor shopping centers, but are figuring out ways to spend a lot more time outside. Yeah. The pool pool closures, does that seem to make sense? Does it seem like just a measure that should be taken just in case at this point? Because... You're outdoors. You could be spread out. I mean, pools can get crowded. But you could you could reduce it by decent amount. Still in the pool, yeah. Um, so well, I was kind of surprised by. It. I mean, surprise is not a word. I'm not. I wasn't surprised by. It, but then when I actually thought about it, I'm like, I, I didn't see that as a high risk. I have no idea what chlorine in water does to the coronavirus. Um, when I first heard about that, I thought, well, yeah, of course, of course, you need to close the pools. But rethinking it now, right. I'm with you. I mean. Based upon basically any good cleaner, soap and water, killing coronavirus, a, a pool is probably great. You're usually not that close to the other person you're swimming around. And so in hindsight, that might have been um, an action that was taken too early. And as we've talked to other local businesses, but then also you know government-like agencies trying to figure out if they are going to stay open or open in the fall, it does really kind of lend itself or give a vote to wait and see, as opposed to making an early decisive action, which might be overboard. Do you think it could change? Maybe come I think it could change. I mean, I think they're supposed to open. The they, were, this, they would have opened on Friday. Yeah. So I think giving that timeline, they had to be like, what are we going to do? Yeah. And made a black or white decision where they could have been like closed at least until July. I, I, I'm surprised I didn't see more of that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think pools are 
disgusting and like the concept of the idea that we're all in the public pool. Yeah. We're just in a giant bath together, right? <laughs> and so I've done a decent amount of, of my own research on does chlorine work or not work. <laughs> and shockingly, it's like very effective at what it does in terms of killing gross germs and everything else in the water, but not harming humans, which is pretty funny story of how it came about. Some guy totally rolled the dice on it of if it was harming humans or not when they like started using chlorine back in the day. Hmm. And uh, it actually worked out. But so I'm guessing it would be, this is potentially the most <laughs> off-based, wrong thought ever, but <laughs> I'd be surprised if chlorine wasn't effective in disinfecting uh, yeah. oh, I think it, coronavirus. Oh, I think it is. Yeah. So, I think that's been, yeah. Uh, I can see them reversing just it. like, right, I mean, just the idea of, if we're talking about wind and humidity and sunlight effect of this virus, how it moves, think about just being submerged in water, yeah. you know, or, and then all the chemicals in there. Um, my only thought is, what people have talked about public pools is, when you go, you're supposed to, the, you know, go in the public bathroom to rinse off and shower ahead of time, and then just the, the, that, that public facility part of it, which is, Really, no different than public bathroom anywhere to a certain extent. So I feel like if they could figure out that, whether it's a regular cleaning schedule or something else, then there'd be really no reason. Maybe close the snack bar. You don't need a snack bar at the pool or yeah. something like that. Limit people coming in, and then you have a really good, really good time, good summer. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's enough airflow there, and you know, I don't think there's a lot of concern about transmission happening in a public pool. So it'll be super interesting to track and see if it yeah. changes at all. Cool. Well, I think we had more to discuss today, but as usual, went off on some solid tangents there, guys. So I think we'll wrap it up today. Uh, I've never done the closing part, so I don't know what to say, really. Well, yeah. So the things that we've (laughs) skipped over that we'll certainly talk about soon are some recent bankruptcies, what we think that means for retailers, what we think that means for landlords. Quick note on the EIDL, which was the disaster loan program. Um, That was as much of a disaster as it could have been in itself. It was supposed to fund a certain amount, and they're funding 10%. We're going to cover some of those things, cover unemployment numbers, and what we think that means for the economy in the long term. Cool. Fun fun chatting with you guys in person. (laughs) It's going to be a great week to get outside. As always, if you have any uh, questions, comments, or feedback, we would absolutely love love to hear from you. What are you doing outside? What are you doing? To cope with this, the city as the city reemerges, you can reach us at hello at madeinkc.co or on Twitter at madeinkc underscore. Thanks.